Good morning, church. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, Like Matt shared, I am typically down in the basement leading our kids' stuff. I lead our youth stuff as well. Um, So it's nice to be at the 930 service, see some new faces that are definitely familiar, but I'm always in the basement during this service. So it's good to be up here with you all. Um, So yeah, I I lead our youth ministries here, and most of you know that, but um, you probably don't know how much that impacts your brain. Uh, A few weeks ago, um, when I learned in staff meeting that we were doing a summer in the Psalms, um, my first and only feedback for the pastoral team was that we should spell summer with a silent P, just like Psalms is, P-S-U-M-M-E-R. And so as you visualize this this morning, apparently it wouldn't be even enough with a silent P up there, Um, but if you want to imagine with me a silent P before summer, um, I would feel loved and supported with that decision. Um, Also, if you don't think that that's too crazy of an idea, um, you would be a great fit for our youth ministry, so I'd love to connect with you after service and get you plugged in. Um, In all seriousness, I'm excited to dig into the Psalms this morning. Uh, Before we jump in, we'd love to just go ahead and spend some time praying. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for everybody who's here. Um, We thank you for your word and and the ability to freely worship you, God. Um, I just ask that you move here today, that you work in each of our hearts, and that you just help us to take away what you want us to hear, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So today we're going to be digging into Psalm 103, and as I was thinking about preparing to teach on the Psalms, I realized that I kind of have a weird relationship with the Psalms. I've always had an odd understanding of them. There are times in the Psalms where I just question what I'm supposed to be taking away. You see, I know the Psalms are people's words. David is emphasized a lot in the Psalms, and we get a glimpse into his life and his emotions and all the things he's going through, but I also know the Psalms are God's word. And there are places in the Psalms where there are these deep theological truths that are shared, but then we also have these places in the Psalms where there's these heavy emotional feelings shared. There are psalms of lament and sadness, psalms of great thanksgiving and praise. There are psalms that are clearly inspired as they prophesy of the coming king. But there are also psalms where it just kind of feels like somebody's venting about how they feel. And over the years, I've kind of processed and wondered how to interpret the psalms, how to wade through those. How do we know what God is trying to teach us through these psalms? Are they all theologically accurate statements, or are there instances where we're just supposed to relate to those emotions and take that away? Should we just understand that the psalmist is sharing their feelings, or should we take every word as deep theological truth? I think of Psalm 22, where the psalmist shares, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Is that a theological statement saying that God doesn't answer prayers? Of course not. We know that. But, but these are just some of the thoughts that I've wrestled with over the years as I've thought about the Psalms. And to be honest, because of this, there have been times in my life that I've just avoided reading the Psalms. I didn't want to wade through this nuance and would much rather just read the epistles where there's this direct statement that applies to me and I can take it away and put it directly in my life. But as I've grown in my faith, I've realized more and more that these things need to be held in tension. It doesn't just have to be a theological statement or an emotional response. It can be both. 
There can be similar statements intertwined, and as we engage with the Psalms and wrestle with how to interpret them, we need to lean on the Holy Spirit to lead us in that journey. The Psalms teach us so much through both theological truths and intense emotional feelings. I've realized that the Psalms are beautiful in allowing us to dig into our emotions and also encourage us to be real with God. And so today, as we dig into Psalm 103, if you're in a similar spot, I just want you to know that your doubts, your questions, your wrestlings, they're welcomed here. And to lean into God and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in those. For the sake of time today, we're just going to cover the middle section of Psalm 103. Um, We're going to leave out the beginning and end, but I'd highly encourage you guys to read them. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, you can even read them as I'm sharing this morning. Um, But we're going to take it one section at a time, dig into the text, and see what God is calling us to do because of that. And, And so our big idea today that we'll see all throughout this psalm is that God is compassionate, and that drastically changes who we are. God is compassionate, and that drastically changes who we are. This passage emphasizes God's compassion over and over again, and I believe that single characteristic of God is enough to change us. Uh, We we work with an organization called Compassion International. Marin and I sponsor a couple children from there, and when I think about the word compassion, that's what comes to mind. We get mail regularly from them sharing the needs of these children all across the world. These kids who have been born into poverty, who who may not have access to safe drinking water, who barely have enough money for food, nonetheless, education, clothing, and life-saving medicine. As Compassion shares these stories, they share details about who each kid is, their family situation, and the specific obstacles they face in their life. It's a great organization that strives to meet both physical and spiritual needs for these children by child sponsorship. And as they share these stories of these kids who are growing up in such difficult situations, you can't help but to feel bad for them. You can't help but wonder where they're going to end up without any intervention. You can't help but have compassion towards them. You see their circumstances and realize that they did nothing to deserve that. And it causes you to feel pity for them. That's compassion. That's what we're going to talk about today. The Oxford Dictionary defines compassion as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortune of others. And so as we dig into this this psalm today, that's what we're going to find of the Lord. So I'd invite you to join me. We're going to read verses 6 through 9, and I'd encourage you to follow along. Uh, Again, we're skipping the beginning just for the sake of time, but I'd encourage you to read that on your own. So starting in verse 6, Psalm 103 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And that brings us to our first point. Who we think God is matters immensely. This verse clearly lays out for us who God is. It shares several different attributes of God's character, and who we believe God is is extremely important. Put simply, our theology matters. The way we picture God drastically impacts how we interact with him and how we interact with others. And that's exactly what theology is. 
Theology is the study of God, or who you believe God is. Many people believe different things about God, but we need to make sure that we have good theology so that who we think God is actually lines up with who God is. Let me say that again. We need to make sure we have good theology so that who we think God is actually lines up with who God is. This text says that God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, that he won't always accuse or harbor his anger forever. But these aren't just attributes that David arbitrarily picked. He didn't go through his list of favorite characteristics of God and say, let's focus on these. He, he actually takes it from how God defines himself. There aren't too many times when God states who he is. Typically, we just see who he is or hear who he is from others. However, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai and God speaks to him. That's why verse 7 of this psalm says he made his ways known to Moses. It's not just a random statement. It's actually where the following verses 8 and 9 come from. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the second set of Ten Commandments from God because he broke the first ones in anger when he found out the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf. And as Moses is on this mountain in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God describes himself to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sound familiar? These are the same characteristics that David mentions in Psalm 103, which is a great example for us, a great point to take away, is that as we derive our theology or our understanding of God, we need to look to the Word to see who God is. Who better to define God than God himself? If you want to have good theology, don't look to the world to define your theology. Look to the Word to define your theology. Many times people form their theology purely based on personal experience or even based on what they want God to be like. However, that's a dangerous thing to do. It's dangerous to define God as something that he may not actually be. Bad theology isn't just a small thing. Bad theology can be devastating. If I think God promises to give me millions of dollars and he doesn't do that, I mean, I think God's a liar or that he's not real. If I think God will never let anyone I care about get sick or die and I lose somebody close to me, I'm going to be angry with God and lose my faith. If I think that God hates me for my sins and that he could never forgive me, I'm going to live in guilt and shame and feel like I'm not good enough. If there's something that God has named sinful, but I don't think that's sinful and I choose to engage in that thing, I'm going to wind up hurt and wonder why God didn't warn me about that. If I think that God is the same as my earthly father or mother, I might ascribe some of their sinful ways to God. There are a thousand more examples of what bad theology could lead to. We can go through specific scenarios for hours, some of which have deeply impacted people in here. We need to make sure our theology aligns with who God says he is so that we don't end up in one of these scenarios. These aren't just random scenarios that I pulled. These are actually scenarios that I've seen firsthand over my years in ministry. I've seen people leave the faith because they didn't have 
good theology. And it's incredibly sad to see. It's heartbreaking to see people stray from God just because they have false beliefs and expectations of who he is. So we need to spend time studying theology so that we can draw closer to God and so that we can have a right relationship with him. However, that can be tricky. There's so much in the Bible and it can take a lifetime to accurately and fully understand each person of the Trinity. As a staff team, we've been going through a book called Fix Your Eyes. This book has compiled what scripture says about a bunch of different theological topics. And we've been digging into this to to refine our theology. There are plenty of books out there that have helped condense this topic that can be really helpful in understanding who God is. I'd encourage you to take time to continue to learn about who God is, to refine your theology. However, as you do it, know that you will never fully comprehend every aspect of God. And that's actually a good thing. We can spend our whole lives studying God and learning more about him, and we will never fully comprehend every attribute of him. It's because God is so much bigger than us, so much wiser than us, so much beyond our understanding. This God created the entire universe And if we could understand him in two minutes, he wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. But he is a God worth worshiping. He's a God worth learning about and walking alongside, and we should spend time developing a solid theology. It's incredible that we can actually know God personally and walk alongside him. And in this next section of Psalm 103, it shows us more of who he is and how that can happen. So we're going to continue on in Psalm 103. We're going to be in verses 10 through 13. It says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And that brings me to my next point. Because of God's compassion, we are offered freedom from our sins. Because of God's compassion, we are offered freedom from our sins. Our sins deserve punishment. It's what this first part of the scripture is saying when it says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. In Romans 6, it tells us that the wages of our sin is death, and it's great news that God doesn't treat us according to that. But that's what we deserve. We've rebelled against the God who created us and chosen our way over his way. That's what sin is, and we deserve punishment, each and every one of us. We deserve to be punished for the sins that we have committed, but God is compassionate. He feels pity on us and desires to be in relationship with us. Instead of sitting there and watching us suffer, his compassion led him to do something about it. God sent Jesus to this earth to pay the ultimate price so that we can have freedom from our sins. However, not everyone will receive this gift. It's offered to all of us, but as this passage says, so great is his love for those who fear him. If we want to experience freedom from our sins, we need to place our faith in Christ. In the Gospels, Jesus takes time to ask his disciples who people said he is. They respond with a bunch of different answers. People have all sorts of views of who Jesus is. Many think he was a great teacher and we can derive some morals from him. Many think 
He actually enforces unnecessary rules and constrains our lives. Many think he was a person in history, while others believe he was just made up. But Jesus then asked his disciples, who do you believe I am? And Simon Peter answered Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, the answer to this question is a personal one. It doesn't matter what others think. It matters what each of us individually believe. And so I ask you today, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe he is God incarnate, the Messiah that came to save us from our sins? And if so, have you placed your faith and trust in him? Romans 10.13 gives us great news when it says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This gift is offered to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can do that at any moment. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ today, could be the day that you do so. You can call upon the name of the Lord and receive salvation. And there are some incredible promises for us who have placed our faith in Christ right here in Psalm 103. We have this promise that God won't treat us as our sins deserve. We have this promise that he won't repay us according to our iniquities. We have this promise that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. And we have this promise that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God is just and punishes our sins. However, if we place our faith in Christ, those sins are paid for. Christ paid for them when he was nailed to the cross. As Christ stretched out one arm to the east and one arm to the west and was nailed to that cross, he took on the sins of all who believe in him. He paid the price of our sin in his death, and those sins have been removed so far from us. That's great news, church. The truth is that even though this incredible gift is offered to each of us, many will choose to not accept it. Many will choose their way over God's way, and we'll have to face the consequences for those choices, both here on earth and in eternity, separated from God. And as Christians, that should break our heart. We should be filled with compassion towards those people. Which brings me to my third point. It's that God's compassion towards us should lead us to be compassionate towards others. God's compassion towards us should lead us to be compassionate towards others. Let's read on in Psalm 103. Um, this will be the last section we read. Um, verses 14 through 18 in Psalm 103. It says, For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Our lives are so short. About three months ago, Marin and I had twin boys, August and Rivers, and since then we've received, thank you, <laughs> um, since then, we've received a lot of help, a lot of advice. And one of those pieces of advice that we keep hearing over and over is don't blink. It goes by so fast. And if you gave me that advice, I apologize. I have blinked since then. So I apologize for not fully following that. 
But, but as I've grown and waded through life, I've realized that that's so true. Life goes by so fast. The years fly by so quickly. At one point, you can't believe you're now in the main sanctuary instead of kids' church. And then you're in high school. Then you're graduating college. Then you have kids and you're married and soon you're going to have grandkids and life is just passing by so quickly. We all wonder how we've gotten to the point in life that we're at and how it's just moving so fast. This psalm gives the analogy of a flower in the field that's blown over and gone and its place remembers it no more. This is echoed in James 4.14, which says, What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It's sad to think about, but there will be a time in the not-so-distant future that each of us sitting here will not be on this earth anymore. Another couple generations past that, and we probably won't even be remembered. Our lives are passing us by. How are you using yours? How are you leveraging your days? I firmly believe that if we have received God's compassion, that it should move us to have compassion for others. If we've placed our faith in Christ, we shouldn't look at others as terrible, as messed up, as unlovable. We should see them as lost and have compassion on them. That's what Jesus did. Compassion is actually one of the key influences we see in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 15, Jesus was with a massive crowd for days, healing them, caring for them. And before they departed, the text says he was filled with compassion for them because they had been with him for three days and didn't have anything to eat. So he miraculously fed them. In Matthew 9.36, it says he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he instructs his disciples to pray to send more workers into the harvest field. In Mark 1.41, a man with leprosy approaches Jesus, and Jesus is moved with compassion, and he reaches out his hand and heals the man. In Matthew 14.14, Jesus saw crowds of people and was moved with compassion and started healing those who were sick. And these are just a few examples. Time and time again, Jesus is filled with compassion, and every time, it causes him to help people. Every time he's filled with compassion, he does something about it. His compassion leads him to action. There's one more story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 18 that I think is pivotal to our theology of Jesus' compassion. It's a little bit longer, so I'm going to summarize it for us, but it has so many important truths. Jesus tells a story of a man who owed about $100 billion in today's money to a king. He couldn't pay him back, so he begs and pleads with this king to just be patient with him. And in verse 27, it says, The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's what God does for us. God's compassion has canceled our massive debt. What a great story. A great example of of God's compassion towards us. However, the story doesn't stop there. The very next verse, after this man is forgiven, this servant goes out and finds one of his servants who owes him a couple thousand dollars in today's money, grabs him around the neck, and starts to choke him, demanding repayment. His servant falls to his knees and begs for forgiveness, but the man who was just forgiven so much refuses. He then had his servant thrown in jail until he could pay the debt, and eventually 
the word gets back to this king. As you can imagine, the king was not too happy to hear this. In verse 33, and this is so important, the king says, Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Lord, help me to never be that servant. God's compassion towards us should lead us to be compassionate towards others. If you have experienced God's compassion, it should move you to have compassion towards others. How can we be forgiven such a great debt by a king and not be moved to love and forgive others? Your life on earth is short. How are you spending it? Does your heart break for those who don't know Jesus? We should see people's situations and instead of judging them or getting frustrated at them, we should be filled with compassion towards them and it should cause us to move towards them, not away from them. In a few months when we see college students packing the downtown bars and instead of getting frustrated that they aren't living godly lives, we should feel compassion towards them because they're seeking for love and acceptance in the wrong place and we have what they need. When we see someone less fortunate than us, maybe instead of judging the, the choice that they, that they may have made that brought them there, we should have compassion on them and seek to help them. When we hear about tragedies that happen all across our country and our world, we, we should have compassion on those who are affected and pray for them. When we know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, we should think about eternity and how they need to be made right with God and have compassion on them, which should lead us to share the gospel and invite them to experience God's incredible compassion. Compassion should always move us to action. I was convicted of this earlier this week, kind of in the midst of preparing the sermon. In the middle of the night, August and Rivers kept crying, and I was frustrated. That happens many nights. I just wanted to sleep, and all I could think of was just telling them, go to sleep. We just fed you. We just changed you. We just took care of your needs. Can you just sleep? I'm tired. But then Marin picked them up and asked what's wrong. Going through a list in her mind, she thought about if they were having stomach problems, if they were too hot or too cold, if they wanted their pacifiers and sought to seek a solution. She was filled with compassion towards them and how they can't help themselves. She realized their difficult situation of not being able to move, not being able to communicate, not being able to help themselves, and felt pity towards them, which moved her to action. I was filled with frustration. I just wanted them to figure it out or deal with it so I could sleep. And as I've been thinking about this topic of compassion, I've realized so often frustration is the opposite of compassion. We need to look at other people's issues and let those move us to be compassionate towards them instead of letting their issues make us frustrated with them. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt and think of all the things they've had to endure in this life and be moved with compassion. And I don't know who that is in your life, but I'd encourage you to think about it. Is there a person or a few people that you're quick to be frustrated with, that you're quick to not be compassionate towards? How can you be more compassionate towards them? This all starts by first experiencing God's incredible compassion towards you. It starts by surrendering your life to Christ and accepting the free gift that he offers you. And as you experience his compassion, more and more, you'll desire to be compassionate 
towards those around you. Draw closer to the Lord, know him better, and allow that to flow out into your life. Because after all, your life will blow over like a flower in the field, and it'll be gone before you know it. But God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. Let's pray.